Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Are you a sales leader looking to take your business to the next level? Are you looking to make 2020 your best year yet? Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook called The Ultimate Guide to Setting and Achieving Sales Goals. In it, you'll learn how to set the right sales goals, how to track your progress toward those goals, and more. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 216. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today I am speaking to the co-founder and CEO of DealPoint.io, which is a tool that helps sales teams be more buyer-centric, making selling and buying more efficient for everybody involved. Our guest has over 20 years of experience in sales and marketing, and he's also the co-president of the American Association of Inside Sales Professionals for Portland, Oregon. So he has a lot of expertise to share with us. We are so glad to have you here. Welcome to the show, Tom Williams. Elizabeth, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really, really like what you guys are doing at Criteria for Success, and I'm very happy to talk with a, with a fellow enthusiast. Definitely. When we um, were preparing for this episode, and I always um, have a prior conversation with a guest and and we kind of figure out what we should talk about. And it was such a fun conversation with you because like you said, we're so philosophically assigned and I are aligned. And I love that um, we're at, we're doing very different things, but we have the same philosophy, the same principle that's driving both of our organizations. And that's so incredibly important. So I just shared some of the very top level highlights of your bio, kind of what people could get from your LinkedIn, but that's mm-hmm. not all you do and, and all you are. <laughs> so I'd love it if you could introduce yourself a bit to our listeners, Tom, maybe talk about where you developed the passion for DealPoint um, and kind of why why you're doing that, or you could talk about um, key steps on the journey to where you are today. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, I started off my career in marketing and uh, many, many years ago, I was in a, a board meeting and the v- I was the VP of marketing and the VP of sales said, I don't know what the hell happened. And then literally the next week I became the VP of sales and marketing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a, first of all, it was a great lesson. Uh, you should definitely know why are the numbers headed down South. You should, you should look into that before the board meeting. Uh, good idea. <laughs> but it actually gave me a really good opportunity because when I was just in marketing, I'd have these great ideas, but they weren't really tested on the street as well as they should be. Mm-hmm. So when you have the dual responsibility of sales and marketing, you're able to say, I think this is a great message. Let's go and try it on the street and let's listen to what the customers are actually saying and have a much tighter feedback loop. Uh, Definitely. And it was from there that I kind of got the appreciation for the the customer doesn't get enough love. Uh, marketing often is talking about marketing and how great we are as a company. And mm-hmm. salespeople, I think, are focused on how can I help my customer buy my thing, which is a totally different question. Uh, so when you put those two things together, you realize that if we can be working to help the customer be more satisfied and fix their problems, then sales makes their number and marketing can be a lot more focused on actually more interesting messaging because it's less about me and more about you, which is more of a challenge, but uh, more scope for interesting stuff. So that that's where my, my passion for customer-based everything came from. Uh, and it also makes a lot of sense because um, you get a lot fewer uh, ghostings when you're actually working <laughs> on behalf of the customer. Definitely. It's, it's a funny thing because, like you said, 
you know, if you if you don't know how a lot of sales and marketing teams actually work, you would think they must be incredibly buyer-centric. That's all they do is they talk to buyers. But it's so easy to just get focused on yourself and on your product and on your offering and be, be kind of navel-gazing instead of really looking out and, and thinking, how could we best meet our buyer's need uh, at every step along that sales yeah. journey? So well, It's just a lot easier because you know your product and mm-hmm. the easiest thing in the world is to give a demo of because you know mm-hmm. what's going to happen next. Um, but really, it's a lot harder to be brave enough to dig into that customer's needs and to be, I think, there's a real soft skill in gaining trust. So gaining that trust of I'm not just here to listen for 10 seconds and then I'm going to force my product down your throat, but actually yep. take on like a consultant's hat and say, how can I help this guy make their life easier? And if you genuinely have that, you know, you have to make your sales, right? You have to make your number, but you can do it by engaging with that customer. And actually it ends up being a more interesting day because you're problem solving rather than just regurgitating a script. Definitely. And like you said, I think this is, that's one of the main reasons that probably people don't is when you hire a salesperson, it's easy to train them on your product or your service, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's the easiest kind of training content to develop is to say, okay, here are our features. Here's the spec Mm -hmm. sheet. You know, it's this big, it does these things. Here are success stories. And the soft skill of having a consultative conversation with a prospect of being able to go in with a blank sheet of paper and come out with a deliverable that you know, your organization can provide. That's a skill. And that yeah. takes time to develop. It doesn't have to be for a $100 million thing either. Absolutely. You can, you can be selling a, I don't know, a reasonably low ACV product and still be consultative. You just put Definitely. yourself in that person's shoes. Even just thinking, you know, which one of my relatively low value things is going to be the best fit for them. And what I think a lot of people that might be in sales leadership or management might think is, I the, the skills and techniques have to be very unique to our business. And it does require a deep understanding of your subject matter that people know the right questions to ask. But the basic skills are, they can be applicable across a lot of different roles. So somebody could have come from a different business than yours. And if they know how to ask good questions, mm-hmm. all you have to do is teach them the content and then they will apply their question asking expertise, that soft skill to the new you know, type of prospect that they're speaking to. So it's not it's not this crazy advanced thing that you have to have like this magical, you know, unicorn salesperson to be able to do it. No, it's relatively basic. It's just, you know, have you First of all, giving your team a mandate that they need to be asking these questions. Do you give them the time and the space to do it? Are you incenting the demos and the show up and throw up technique? Or mm-hmm. um, And then do you have tools and systems and processes that can maybe help you be buyer-centric, which leads well, to, I think, deal point, I.O., yeah. and, and kind of why you're doing what you're doing. Well, and you probably have uh, one or two people on your team who does this right. And those, if you look to yes. see who are your top sellers, mm-hmm. that's probably people who are asking those questions. It's, Definitely. So, yeah, I love the idea that everybody has their, nearly everybody has a sales play or a, you know, a best practice. They just need to go and ask the right people uh, inside their organization. 
Definitely. I think a lot of times uh, organizations feel like we don't have any, you know, we're not hitting sales targets. So we need to just blow everything up. Um, clearly nothing is going to work. And it, what, what it usually is, like you said, it, we see this with all of our clients as well. When we come in, you have to have at least one person who's hitting their targets or at least is doing well. I mean, if not, yeah. you're in dire straits. So have you ever tried to figure out what helps them be successful? And it's not about trying to clone them and saying, okay, you know, Mary is our most successful salesperson. So everybody just copy Mary um, and say exactly what Mary says, but to think what are the key principles of how she's successful and how she's doing what she's doing. And it is likely that she's consultative. It is likely that she's asking good questions. I mean, it might be that you have a salesperson that's really successful just because they built up a, a strong network over time and they're able to just kind of mine that network. But it, it it's usually going to be that you've got a very buyer-centric person and, um, and they know what questions to ask. And if you can literally just kind of document those questions, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's amazing the power of that. So how did this focus on buyers? Um, it, it sounds like it's something that really just kind of arose in you over time and, and over experience in your different roles. How did that turn into creating the company that you have founded now? Well, yes, yeah, so I used to work at an electronics company uh, and my sales guys would say, you know, guarantee close by the end of the month. We've all heard that. And then mm -hmm. I would, I'd call the, the prospects and they say, oh, we're, th we're thinking about it. So just very <laughs> different levels of alignment. Um, and I kind of, you know, stuck that away in my mind. And then I went to work for an enterprise SaaS company. So completely different market, completely different everything, but the exact same problem. And I realized it's because the salespeople were thinking about their quota and not really listening to what the customer was saying. And sorry, specifically not attaching our schedule to their schedule. So. Mm -hmm. When you say guarantee close by the end of the month, what are the chances that that person's initiative ends at the end of the month? It's <laughs> probably not. You're, you're putting it in your perspective. And so when you put things on your schedule, it's just less likely to actually happen on time. Uh, and then, it, I don't know, it was three years ago or so that I had the sudden realization that the two situations were exactly the same. And that if the sales team could be on the same page as the buyers and we're actually looking at the problem from their perspective, then we'd be a lot more likely to have an accurate close date. And from there, it was like, well, if we saw what they were seeing, so what data sheets does the buyer have in front of them? What calendar is the buyer looking at to make these decisions? Then my team would be more accurate and have much higher confidence in both the, the value that they were providing and the time schedule that I needed as somebody who was uh, you know, putting a forecast in front of the board. And so that's really where the idea of a, a mutual place was born. And you know, we've tried different iterations of it, but we've come down to the, the most valuable part is if you have a multiple step deal, then the seller often knows a lot more about the mechanics of buying the product than the buyer does because mm -hmm. the seller has sold it a hundred times. So the best sales teams already put together a mutual action plan or a mutual success plan to say, we've agreed that you want to buy the thing. Here are the steps that it's going to take to buy it. So you need to have a, a legal sign-off. We always do a proof of concept. We've got to make sure the, in, the systems integrators are all working. All those mechanics. If you can get that out and put it in front of the buyer, then one, it dramatically improves your credibility because it shows that you've done this before and you know what you're talking about. But two, it helps that buyer sell you internally because it says this guy knows what he's talking about. 
And three, it lets you understand if they really are qualified because if they can't rustle up the resources that you know are going to be required to make this deal, mm-hmm. then it's fantastic to know about that in month one rather than month seven when it chokes out. So Definitely. You know, all those things kind of came together, this, this epiphany of just look at this deal from the buyer's perspective and then let the buyer see the seller's perspective of here's what I know needs to happen. And, and truly, if you just if you just talk with each other, the, the world's a simpler place. <laughs> it really is. It's so funny. Um, so the name of our company is Criteria for Success, and we uh, that name comes from a principle that our our founder and CEO Charles Bernard came up with around aligning with a prospect on a little less about the the buying process, although that's important, but even just about what are you actually talking about and working on. What are they responsible for uh, as a buyer? And what are you responsible for as the seller? Um, You know, you were talking about the timelines that sales is giving internally, and that's critically important. But also, what are the buyer's timelines? And we've seen situations where the buyer thinks, I can implement this on January 1st if I sign off on December 28th. And you're like, no, there's a six-week implementation time. You need to make the decision much earlier. And the buyer actually can be disappointed by by the speed, much less the internal organization. So just really helping everybody be more successful. Well, there's a buddy of mine at Outreach who um, he was closing it. It was a pretty substantial sale. And the, their head of his, his customer said, we need to have, I don't know, 15,000 people in the pipeline by our board meeting on July 31st. And <laughs> so he, um, my buddy Chad worked backwards with this guy to say, well, if you need 15,000 people in the pipe, then we know it takes, I know, eight weeks to get that many people up and running. Mm-hmm. And it takes a month to get the software working and to get your scripts revised. And we know this because we've done it a hundred times. So that means you really, really have to sign this contract today, sooner, sooner <laughs> rather than later. And, and here's a pen. <laughs> yeah, but, but more importantly, really, Chad saved that guy's butt because the guy was just gonna had thought, oh, I'll just buy some magic solution, and mm-hmm. yeah, as long as I buy it by July 27, I'll be I'll be fine by July 31st. <laughs> but Chad acted as a you know as a as trusted advisor and said that it's not doesn't work that way. Let's look at the actual timelines of what really happens so that you end up being successful. You have that literally criteria for success. Definitely. And I'll include a resource in the show notes um, about uh, called a deal document template because there's a, there's a document that can help when you're scoping out your criteria for success. Um, it, it, and, and that's just a basic way of doing it. But you're right. And what you're doing is you're preventing an unhappy customer in a lot of ways because Mm -hmm. you can have that conversation about, Hey, you guys need to sign off and make that decision today to be successful. If you've built a level of trust with your prospect through the sales process to this point where you've been a trusted partner, you've been consultative, you've asked the right questions, you, you know what you're talking about. They're going to believe you. They're not going to think that you're just pressuring them and pushing them of like, no, you have to buy today. They're going to recognize you're telling the truth and you're preventing them from having a very uncomfortable conversation with their boss when they don't hit their own targets. And and when when you put that timeline in front of them, you're not just saying, I got to sign it today. You're saying there are five things between now and when you told me you need this thing delivered Mm -hmm. when you need that value. And I'm, and I'm telling you that there are five steps in between A and B. So Look, look at the steps and see for yourself. And, and, and what's more, 
the, the thing I like is if you give those as assets that they can sell internally, it helps mm-hmm. drive uh, urgency. Because the chances are your your champion wants to buy your thing and now they're fighting internally for resources and budget and attention and all that stuff. Absolutely. But there's, there's two cool things there. And, and one is, so you've given them the assets. And two, if you can connect it to an initiative that they're working on. So in Chad's example, he, his board had said, you need to have 15,000 people in the pipeline by July 31st. The guy didn't really care how that happened. Well, mm-hmm. that wasn't that wasn't the problem. Um, but the cool thing is if you can find out what that initiative is, then there's already budget for that initiative. So you're yes. not fighting for budget. You're just, um, you're fighting for allocation of an existing budget, which is a, a way easier task than making money appear out of nowhere. Yeah, it's amazing how often we find that buyers or that salespeople are talking to one person and they think, well, this is going to be the decision maker. This is the key person that's involved. And they don't think about all of the different people at that prospective client's organization that are going to be involved in some way in implementing your your product or service. And many of those people can scuttle the opportunity before oh, yeah. it gets a chance to close. And so if you can get them involved in the buying process, either directly through an interaction that they're on a call with you or indirectly because you're giving them the right information so that your point of contact can distribute it internally so that they know who to get involved, um, you're going to significantly increase your potential of closing that business because um, you're kind of getting rid of some of those potential you know, uh, basically bombs, time bombs that are going to explode in your face as you as you thought you were about to cross the finish line. You're, you're exposing them early. You're getting people invested and engaged. And if people have been a part of the buying process for a while, they get invested and mm-hmm. they feel like it's they're they're a part of it. They're going to do a lot of that internal selling, so you don't have to. You know, I've seen situations where. One person in a group meeting, um, uh, kind of at finalist stages, raises a concern, and it's just a valid concern. You know, how are we going to implement this? And instead of the salesperson having to say, having to say it, another person at that prospect company in the meeting says, "Oh yeah, we talked about this already. We're going to do this and this and this," and they start problem solving and selling mm-hmm. for you. And yeah. that's the best when you can, you know, educate and enable your buyer to sell on your behalf. Well, so one uh, practical technique that I like around this uh, discovery of who that buying committee is, when you lay out to the customer, here are the steps that are going to happen between now and you getting that value. Um, You can say, so for example, um, finance needs to take a look at this. Typically, it's the CFO. Who, Who would be looking at this in your organization? That's a way different question than tell me who your CFO is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you give them why you want to know and what they will be involved in, they're a lot more likely to tell you. And then uh, a really cool thing that I learned um, is say, what kind of questions is that person going to ask you? Exactly. And then, and then what you say is, why don't we have a, a, a five minute conversation with that decision maker and just say, I will not answer any of their questions we're just in a question listening mode. But what you do then is you get yourself five minutes with that person uh, and, and your champion. And you establish a relationship with that person and you establish that you're not a time waster and that you're a respectful listener. So you, you, you get all the benefits of the intro um, without threatening your champion 
but still that that more senior decision maker sees who you are and sees that you're a, 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 con- a contributor to the discussion rather than uh, just trying to close the sale. Definitely. I've even seen salespeople um, say things like, you know, uh, we often find that the next step might be a conversation with a CFO or, you know, somebody in finance, um, have the same conversation that you just talked about. And then even say, you know, what do they tend to prioritize? You know, Mm, are they going to care more about um, cost savings? Are they going to care more about ROI? Um, Do you know how they are? how they are motivated and how they, you know, just how they tend to approach things. And your contact probably knows that they probably have insight into that information. And so if, again, this all depends on having built the trust with your prospect. If you go in and your first question is, how did your, how did your CFO um, (laughs) make decisions? They're not going to tell you, but if you've proven that you care about helping them be successful and that you know what you're doing, you're a subject matter expert. Like you brought up, much earlier, uh, you sell this all the time. This might be the only time this buyer has ever bought what it is that you're selling. And so you need to come in as a subject matter expert and talk to them about what the process is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a value that a salesperson is providing. It's not just the product that you're selling. It's the the advice that you can give. It, totally. Yeah. All right. Um, I know criteria for success, we, we do this, and I know you guys do this as well. We talk about the importance of having a, a playbook, and um, we're a sales playbook organization. We, we build playbooks with and for our clients. Um, what does a playbook mean to you? Well, it's, it's what we talked about earlier. So that understanding what that top seller does and how they do it. And in my mind, uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings in sales is that a playbook is not a script. Uh, mm-hmm. You, when you've got your junior SDR and you know they're calling fifteen hundred people a day, sure, maybe that's scripted. Uh, but what the playbook is, it's 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 a, a series of strategies or directions for an entire um, sales cycle that can get you from A all the way to Z. And you could well have more than one playbook per sales cycle because you don't know what's going to happen uh, as you get from place to place. Like, what what do you do when there is an unavailable CFO? There should be mm-hmm. a playbook for ways that we can get CFOs involved. And for example, the CFO is not being responsive. I'm going to bring in my CEO to call their CFO. That's a, yep. great, that's a great play. And it lets the salesperson, say, um, have a strategy for taking care of problems because probably somebody else has seen this before and has experienced before. So capture that, those best practices and put them in one place. But it, it's not a series of scripts. It's a series of strategies and um, ways to address problems that are going to come up throughout the sales cycle. Uh, I think one of the most important parts is it will get complex. The longer your sales cycle is, the, the more, if you like, branches there are going to be. Mm-hmm. So you don't, need to, you don't need to have a playbook for every single branch, but you do need to have a strategy of like, how do you handle these more and more complex deals? So maybe the playbook uh, is just check in with a senior <laughs> with a senior person when you get to this situation. Yeah, honestly, who's involved? Any, anything really. It's just what's the best practice? What does our company think the best practice is uh, in this situation? And have that written down somewhere so that the team can refer to it 
and keep it up to date and leverage the best thinking. Definitely. It's so funny to me how many organizations develop one playbook, assuming everything goes right. And Mm -hmm. then everything that happens outside that is managed by exception. And that turns out to be, you know, 70, 80, 90% of opportunities. But it's like, you you should start here. And the next step should be this. And the next step should be this. And then a salesperson's like, but that's not what happened. So now what do I do? And so having those different scenarios. It's more like a philosophy or a, an approach to how do we do things around here yep. uh, rather than uh, a, a rote set of commands. Definitely. We have a principle that we use in our training. It's called philosophy and mechanics. And we actually, when we build out playbooks, um, use that as a template. And so anytime you want to give mechanics, you want to give a method, first you have to identify what is the philosophy behind that. Mm -hmm. And then train the team on both the philosophy and the mechanics and say, hey, the mechanics are nice to have. They're best practice. They're recommended. But you have to buy in on the philosophy. If the philosophy is we have a discovery-based sales meeting and every single client, we get to understand what their concerns are. Our recommended mechanics are you're going to use this list of common concerns and narrow down what they have. You might not do that, but you still have to have that discovery-based meeting. You still have to um, use that philosophy. You know, our philosophy is we have to get engagement from the CFO because we don't want them to scuttle the deal at the last minute. Our ideal is they're involved from the beginning or they're involved at this stage. But, you know, whatever mechanics work for you, that's fine, but you have to get the CFO. And Mm -hmm. so often... You develop, you know, we see organizations develop a playbook with just mechanics, and then it's so easy for it to be out of date or inappropriate for a specific situation. And then that makes every salesperson have to do a lot more work and the sales managers to come up with, you know, all these new creative things because uh, they know the standard isn't going to work. Instead, if you if you create a playbook around the philosophies, around the principles, the mechanics can change quite a bit. And they should, ideally, uh, but the philosophy will still be the same and still be accurate. So it also makes it just an easier to maintain tool for the team. Quite, yeah. A very, very good insight. Definitely. So um, I love that that principle that you have. When it comes to playbooks, I know one of the things that we talked about is um, just the, the importance of a playbook that addresses the entire breadth of the sales process instead of just being focused on one piece. Can you talk a little bit about your observations there? Yeah. Um, as I said, a, a lot of playbooks focus on that first deal. Uh, oh, sorry, on the first call. And mm-hmm. uh, people think they're done just because they have that script for the SDR. And they may well have a fantastic prepared PowerPoint for the first meeting. What we really like to see is a a bunch of steps. So they they can map to your opportunity stages as well. Uh, You probably have stages in your your, um, sales force for your opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we like to see is some philosophy as to how do you get from stage to stage and the, I think the easiest way, like certainly the first step is to have a criteria, an exit criteria for each stage. And so that can be the basis of your playbook of what does it mean to have gone from discovery to uh, proof of concept? What what justifies you moving this uh, this stage opportunity? So we like to look at things in terms of outcomes. What has What has happened or what needs to happen in order to move from stage one to stage two? Those are the yeah the core 
uh, tenets of your of your playbook. And then, like you said, that's the philosophy part. And then the mechanics part would be, what's the best practice for getting from stage one to stage two? But I think the key is that you have it throughout the, for each stage, you have pretty explicit criteria of what it takes to get to that stage. And the really nice thing there is that you can have an objective discussion between sales manager and rep on why do you think this deal really is at stage three? Uh, and the rep can say, well, it's because we've hit the criteria. We've hit the exit criteria for stage two, and we've done two out of the four for, for the next stage. That deal is a lot more likely to close on time. Uh, so, And you're a lot more likely to have a successful deal because you really are meeting the, the requirements that the customer is going to be looking for as well. Definitely. So, yeah, so the key is have those criteria for each of the stages and really keep your reps honest about why do they believe that that prospect is at that particular stage? Because uh, the risk is you'll see you'll see a lot of deals get moved forward, uh, you know, towards the end of the quarter. And mm-hmm. if it's not, if you're not meeting those criteria for each stage, then all that's going to end up you end up with heartbreak on the end of the at the end of the quarter. You're going to be doing stupid stuff like offering discounts to try to close a deal. Definitely, <laughs> the problem was a lot earlier in that you you didn't establish that this is a well qualified prospect. Absolutely. It's something that I am constantly surprised by. One of the things that we always ask our clients is, okay, what are your pipeline stages and how are you tracking things? And if they're subjective, you are in for a world of hurt because Mm -hmm. you have set up for each different person on the team to evaluate their opportunities based on their own intuition, based on the outside pressures of the calendar, based on the Mm -hmm. board meeting that's coming up next week, whatever it might be. If you say we have a stage on our opportunity, which is called um, scoped. And Mm -hmm. in order to put an opportunity in that stage, you must have sent a scope to the prospective client. You can't put it in that stage if you haven't done that. And when, when you don't do that, you are inviting salespeople to pad their numbers, or even you're going to have some people who are just naturally a bit more conservative, and they're always going to be evaluating the opportunities as an earlier stage. And then some people who are naturally a little more confident and think that they're going to win everything. And then you're going to have a wildly unbalanced pipeline. It's not even that it's going to be all wrong in one direction, but it's going to be weighted very differently because of the different approaches of each of the people on the team. Well, a lot of a lot of VPs that I know have their own secret waiting spreadsheet somewhere. Exactly. Where like, Sally is a 0.7, Paul is a 0.2. Uh, yes. <laughs> on, and that, you know, that's part of the role of a manager is to know who you're working with. But Definitely. if you can have that more objective criteria, it, it helps the reps disqualify people. Uh, it's really hard to kick a deal out of your pipeline, especially if it's got a big number attached to it. Uh, but if you can look more objectively, then you're having a much more productive conversation too in your one-on-one as to why, let, let's kick this deal out. You know, it's, it's not meeting their criteria. It's later than it should be. Go work on some greener fields. And it's much easier to do that when you have objective criteria to, to wrestle with. Definitely. And when you have those objective criteria, those are natural steps. So if I'm at the step before scoped and I want to move my opportunity forward, I know I need to have the conversations with this prospective client that will get me the information that I can scope it out. And then I need to get the scope put together and I need to send it to them. And so it is telling me what I need to do. And Mm -hmm. if it's a really fuzzy stage, if it's just, you know, it goes from 30% to 45%, 
like, well, I feel 45% more friendly about this prospect. I feel like they like me more. It's, it's or, not clear worst, what to do. The worst of the worst is I've seen qualified as a, as a, as a stage. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> I guarantee you, if you look at that, at that salesperson's quota and what percent of quota they're at right now, there's a direct correlation to how many people they're starting to say are qualified. Yes. Cause yeah, because I need to make my I need to make I need to make quota is not a valid sales stage. It, it, they're breathing and they are willing to talk to me, so therefore they are qualified, and I no, believe and that's going like to be me. a billion dollar opportunity. There we go. I hit my number. <laughs> yeah. Magic. All right. Um, in terms of just how people learn and develop, I know we have a lot of readers who who listen to the podcast, so we're always looking for book recommendations. What are some books that you might recommend to our listeners, either on this topic or on something else? So I have I have two favorites. Uh, one is the Transparency Sale by Todd Capone. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, it's the coolest book because the actual cover is transparent, which is <laughs> nice, <laughs> cool. I definitely stand out on your bookshelf. Uh, but he has really, really practical observations about, you know, just talk about, talk about your pricing and say, here's why our pricing is this. And one of my favorite things he has is the levers. He's like, I'm not going to, I can't just give you a discount, but I do have some levers. So I, I can, I can change the price. If you buy more of the stuff, I can change the price. If you pay up front, I can change the price. If you pay quicker, you know, things like Mm -hmm. that. And you're being transparent, saying here, here are the things that I need to make my company work. Um, another thing I really love that he that his technique is he will highlight his weaknesses right up front, absolutely uh, of his product versus the competitor, and say you know may, maybe I'm no good. And I've done this myself. Uh, I've gone into many mm-hmm. uh, sales calls where I say you know, I'm not I'm not a good bet for you, but I'm I'm happy to talk, but I'm like you're just not a good bet for me. If such an easier conversation, and nine times out of ten, actually, it turns out there is something that you can work together on. Yeah, um, but but you're being but you're being open and upfront out of the gate. So that that's that's the transparency sale by Todd Capone, and then there's the SaaS sales method by uh, Jaco van der Koy, um, and he is one of the principles of winning by design, which is one of my favorite um, uh, strategy consultancies. Uh, so he's got these really, really cool books that are just very, very practical guides to making a blueprint for your sales process. And the thing I love about him is uh, he said, if you were running a, a car production line and um, you know the wheels kept falling off, you chances are you wouldn't fire the wheel guy. You'd go to look at the production line and see what's wrong with the lug, with the lug tightening value that's in your process. Mm-hmm. So. His point is, you know, the vast majority of the time, the problem is in the process, not the people. And Absolutely. Uh, it's a lot easier to think of it in, in a car production line than it is in the sales process. But at the end of the day, they're both mechanisms where you're, you're trying to get people to do stuff to hit a common result. And yeah, look at the process is probably the, the, the pinch point. So yeah, I, I love all his books and, uh, and Todd Capone as, as well. Great guys. Sounds like it. I'll definitely have to check those out. All right. We are always focused on providing actionable advice and tips for our listeners. So I know we've talked about a lot of different things today that I think is pretty actionable, but is there one specific tip that you would recommend that our listeners apply? Yeah. So, you know, a deal point, we, we make mutual action plan software, but mm-hmm. the fact is that you don't need software to do this at, at its most basic. Once you have, 
got the customer saying, yeah, I want to buy the thing. I'm, I'm interested and I understand the value that you're offering. Put out just a five point bullet list of the things that are going to need to happen between now and when they see that value. So um, it's not now and when they give you the check. You know, when they give mm-hmm. you the check, maybe point three is is the third bullet. Work out between now and when are they going to see this value and put it on um, a bullet list so that they say, here's the work that we both need to do to make this thing happen. You'll, you'll deliver immense credibility. You'll give um, enlightenment to your customer so they know what they need to do to make this thing happen. And um, everybody's just more clear. Once you've got that, you know, by all means, come call me and we can make it more sophisticated and cooler and all that. But the first step is just figure out what those five steps are and share them with your customer really early in the deal. They will appreciate it. They will become invested in the process with you. And if they say, well, hell, I'm not going to do that, then you can dump them right there and then and go on to the next deal. And everybody's happier because you're all on the same page. So yeah, uh, just outline what needs to get done and share it early with your customer, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you're like, oh, I don't want to tell them because there's a lot of work. If there's (laughs) a lot of work, then there's a lot of work. And so either fix the problem and make less work in your process or uh-huh. just be upfront with them and say, "Hey, man, there's there's a lot of work to get the value out of my out of my thing, but they they're gonna find that out at some point anyway. So Definitely, don't, don't, hide it. don't be sneaky, don't hide it. Be upfront, and they will appreciate you so much more, and you'll have such a better relationship. And you can even say, you know what, the first implementation is probably not going to be awesome. We have to dial it in twice. Uh, uh-huh. We implement it; it's not awesome. We dial it in twice. That's part of our process." By saying that up front, they will love you so much more when it doesn't work the first time. And they'll be like, it's all right. Uh, Elizabeth told me it doesn't work the first time. It always needs to get dialed in. You have a shared expectation. Just write it down, email it to them. (laughs) So you've got it in writing. (laughs) Yeah. Put it in writing and communicate what's going to happen up front because they don't know. And it's risky for them to buy your thing. Tell them what's going to happen. Definitely. I can second both things that you just said. First of all, I'll say this, anytime you want to implement a technology, um, especially a, a really, really um, robust, uh, you know, fancy, pretty thing, if you can't do it first in, you know, Word or Excel or email, take the time to figure out what it is that you're doing, the content. Yeah. In, in a basic platform. And then that's what a company like yours, and that's what, like DealPoint, is going to do, is going to take a process that exists somewhere and put it in a technology. If you have to start from scratch and do the work of building the process, that's what's actually going to slow down that implementation process and, yeah. and you know potentially make it so it's not as successful. Well, I know so many people who have been sold by HubSpot, 800 bucks a month, and you will magically have a content marketing strategy and they're like, great. And they pay the 800 bucks a month. And they're like, well, where's my content marketing strategy? All I have here is an empty, expensive box. Yeah. So it's, yeah, do it, do it on paper until you, and, 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 you know, rev it on paper, optimize it, change it, practice with it on paper. And when, when you found that you haven't changed it for three months or six months, then stick it into software. Uh, yeah. But, but do it on paper for a long, long time. And all these things, so my, my business partner, uh, our CTO, had one of the coolest observations that every SaaS platform out there is just a fancy spreadsheet. It really, really, really is. <laughs> and so, so do it do it dumb in the spreadsheet. 
It's a little bit of effort, but you will optimize and dial it in. And then when you do put it into software like DealPoint, it will be so much more effective than than if you just buy the technology first and then try to figure out what your process is. Yeah, it's the same thing for CRM even. You know, if if you oh. have never tracked a pipeline, if you've never collected contact information, you could buy Salesforce if you want. And then you're going to sit there for a long time trying to change your team's behavior to a point that they're actually able to use the tool. And if instead you can say, you know, here are our pipeline stages that we've been tracking for months and months and months mm-hmm. um, in Excel and everybody's used to it and they know what things mean, then they're going to be able to actually um, just take that well, and switch it to it. the platform. They'll be grateful. And they're yeah. like, wow, this is easier than that ugly Excel we've been working in for months. Yeah. Yeah, you want they'll, have that philosophy. they'll have that philosophy burned into them uh, yeah. rather than the mechanics burned into them. Absolutely. Love that. Um, but but definitely, if you're ready to move forward with the platform, um, DealPoint is definitely somebody to talk to. Uh-huh. All right. All right, Tom. If you want people to learn more about you and your work and what you do, where should they go? Well, dealpoint.io is a great choice. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn a lot too, but there are literally 5,700 people called Tom Williams who do sales and marketing. <laughs> uh, so um, DealPoint is probably the easier place to find me. All right. And we'll include a link to you, the right Tom Williams, in the show notes (laughs) as well. Yeah. It's Elizabeth Frederick is not as common of a name, but it's pretty common. Uh, All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Tom. Thanks, Elizabeth. All right. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Thanks, Yes. You can find the notes and resources for everything we've been talking about at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 216, including the link to the right to Tom Williams. Be sure to tune in this Friday for another inspirational episode where I will be sharing a great quote that is sure to inspire you. And as a reminder, if you have any feedback for us, topics or questions you'd like us to address, guest suggestions, any of that, you can reach us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend us to a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening. Your ratings and reviews will help more people find the show, and it lets us know what's working and where we can improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore sales. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!